Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Anyone go to the Aggie game yesterday? So let me ask you a question. Why did you go? Seems like kind of, kind of silly question, right? We're the 12th man, right? We're the 12th man. The team needs us. We are there to help them win. We're there to be ready in case somebody gets injured. We can step onto the field. We're the 12th man. We, we help the Aggies win, right? We did a good job yesterday in that victory. But I got to tell you, the, the first time I took each of my kids to an Aggie game, they didn't go to watch the game. They, they loved the concession stand. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, we would sit down. As soon as we had sat down, we'd be back up. We'd be back at the concession stand. They loved the Coke. They loved the popcorn. They loved the hot dogs. And we made trip after trip after trip to the concession stand until they were finally, you know, absolutely stuffed and sugared up and everything. As a matter of fact, they didn't really like it that much when the Aggies scored because everybody cheered too loudly and a cannon went off. And pretty soon, like I said, when they were full of food, they were ready to go. They didn't go for the game. And so I want to encourage you, if you have small children, don't bother. Don't, don't take them to a game. Especially, you know, online, I think tickets are going for a minimum of like $700 a pop. Don't, don't take your kids because they miss the point of the game. Now, I have observed that in the Christian community, frequently we come to Genesis chapter 1 and we miss the point. And we come to Genesis 1 with our set of questions that we want answered. How did God create? How long ago did God create? How old is the earth? We come with our set of questions that we want answered, and it's just possible that Genesis is answering a different set of questions. C.S. Lewis has a great statement. He said, The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship, from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what was it intended to do, and how is it intended or meant to be used. From a corkscrew to a cathedral to Genesis chapter 1, what's the point? I would argue that Genesis 1 is not principally about how or when the world was made, but about who created and why. That's not to say that Genesis is absolutely silent on the how and the when, but the principal point is not how and when, but who and why. Genesis is pointing us to the who of creation, the one creator God, and why he created his point in creation. So as we read Genesis chapter one, what I'd like for you to do is to uh, read it as if we're all Israelites. It's 3,500 years ago, and we find ourselves in the desert. Now, all that we have known our entire existence is slavery. For 430 years, our nation has lived in Egypt, and for the last decades, possibly hundreds of years, all of our people have been enslaved. That's all that we have known. And then through truly miraculous means, this Moses man, one of our own, has led us out of slavery. We we saw gnats, and we saw flies, and we saw frogs, and we saw blood in the water, we saw death. 
And we left and we asked all of our Egyptian neighbors to give us gold and silver and they just poured it out upon us. And we walked out with their wealth. We went to the Red Sea. We thought we were trapped as the Egyptian army chased behind us. And then miraculously, the sea opened up. We went through on dry land. The Egyptian army followed us and they were swallowed up. And now here we are in the wilderness. And it's hot. It's really, really hot. And it's dusty and it's dry and it's dirty and we're really thirsty and we're really hungry. And all that we have got is a promise from a God that we really don't know. We're told that he's the God of our fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have seen these miracles, but we wonder, is he really good? This promised land, is it actually a good land? Is he actually strong enough to get us there through the wilderness and feed us? And give us water all along the way. Is he strong enough to wipe out our enemies? To actually dispossess them and give us the land? Can we trust him? Is he good? Is he powerful? Is he strong? And God's self-revelation to this generation begins in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the entire chapter together. Because remember, they wouldn't have had their own version of the Bible. Moses would have come down off of the mountain and he would have read to them. Probably not just one chapter, but chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. I'm not going to do that to you this morning, but we're going to read the whole first chapter and then we're going to pull it apart. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seed, fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind and and with the seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, 
Fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the earth, that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which is fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and which he had made. So why did God begin his written self-revelation in this manner. Obviously, as we said, Genesis chapter 1 is not a scientific textbook. It says the earth brought forth vegetation. It's not a scientific description of how plant life begins or the processes through which it moves. It's not a scientific textbook, nor is it a myth. There were many ancient Near Eastern creation myths. This is not just another myth. People who are wandering around in the wilderness didn't hear, need to hear another good story about how some god or great being may have created things. They needed to hear absolute factual truth. They needed to hear history. And so what we have in Genesis 1 is historical narrative. Certainly there are poetic structures, and we'll talk about that later, but it is historical narrative with a specific theological purpose or purposes. Specifically, God is revealing himself as distinct. God is setting himself apart from all other so-called gods. God is revealing himself as the one true creator. And he's connecting himself as redeemer God who rescued them out of Egypt to creator God. He's not a regional local deity who is limited in his capacities by geographical boundaries. No, he's the one true God who created all things, all the heavens, all the earth. And so he is utterly and completely distinct. It says in Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 11 and 12, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, And by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. One commentator, H. Conrad Heyer, wrote, Each day of creation dismisses an additional cluster of deities. There goes the sun. There goes the moon. There goes the sea. What are they? They're inanimate. They're created. They are not God. And so day after day after day, God's version, which is true history, of the creation story dismisses all other gods. 
And so God ties himself as redeemer God to creator God. He also ties Israel's destiny to his original destiny for mankind. God created this place so that we could dwell with him. God made creatures in his image and he made us physical. And so we would need a physical place to live. But he created it in such a way so that God could dwell with man. In other words, so that we could experience the greatest blessing that God has to offer. That is personal, intimate relationship with God. And the fall did not disrupt God's plan for this place. The flood did not rule out God's plan for this place. Instead, God's plan for this place continued on and on and on. And in fact, Israel existed as a nation because God was faithful to his original intention. That is to make a place and to inhabit it by creatures made in his image and ultimately to dwell with them. And so Israel was chosen and guarded and protected so that God could restore us back to paradise, which was ultimately lost by Adam and Eve's sin. And so God is tying Israel's destiny to the ultimate purposes of the earth. That's why God began with the creation story. And so what I want us to do is we're going to work through Genesis chapter 1, verse by verse, and make a few observations at each section. Let's read again verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the universe out of nothing. This phrase, heavens and earth, denotes the entire universe. The Hebrews did not have a word or a specific term for universe, and so they used the phrase, heavens and earth. God created the heavens and the earth. We know that he did so out of nothing. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, he is the uncaused cause that we talked about last week. He is the only thing that is outside of creation. He created out of nothing. Now the Hebrew verb that's used there is the verb bara for created. It can mean created out of nothing. And we know that God did in fact create out of nothing from Hebrews 11. But the verb doesn't always have to mean that. What it means is to create something new and fresh and original. And what's interesting about this verb is it's only used of God in the Bible. Okay, only God can bara. We can make things, but we take things that are pre-existent and we shape them. We take matter that already exists and we shape it, or we take an idea and we make it better. But only God can bara. And so in the beginning, God created the universe out of nothing. And then we approach verse 2 and we discover that there are two deficiencies. Genesis 1 verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In Hebrew, we're told that the earth is formless, that is tohu, and void or bohu. In Hebrew, it reads tohu vabohu. Okay? It's, it's an onomatopoeia. It's like topsy-turvy. Some people think that this is a sign of judgment because you have darkness and sea and tohu and bohu, formlessness and void. Some people think it's a sign of God's judgment that has come upon the earth between verses 1 and 2. We'll talk more about that later. In my opinion, what it demonstrates is simply that God is not yet finished with creation. It's formless 
and it's void. It's like a, it's like a, a lump of clay that has not yet been shaped. It hasn't been made into a bowl that you can eat out of or a pitcher that you can pour water out of. It, it's not useful. Specifically, it is not inhabitable by creatures made in his image. So it's not yet prepared for its purpose. Instead, it's covered with darkness, it's formless, and it's void. And what we see in the next 30 verses that carries through the end of the chapter are that these two deficiencies are remedied. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, creates for us the literary structure to understand the entire first chapter of Genesis. What God is going to do is he's going to create form and he is going to fill it. The first three days, he's creating form. The second three days, he is filling that form. He's filling the void. Or if we map out the whole chapter, it looks like this. The first triad, days one, two, and three, God is, in a sense, making uh, creation realms. He's bringing order and structure to the realms. In the last three days, he is filling those realms, or creation rulers, those who will occupy the realms and rule over those realms. And then the seventh day, he ceases from his creative activities. So let's look at day one, the day on which God made light. Verse three, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Few observations. First, God does not create, he does not bara on day one. What he does is separate. And what happens on each day is he either creates or he separates. Here he is creating structure, order to the universe. He's creating these two great realms of light and darkness. Light symbolizing life and blessing from God. So from the beginning, God is laying out his intention to bless the earth. Light and darkness separated. The two great realms put in opposition to one another. And God names them. And we will see throughout the chapter that God continues to name, that is, God exercises his sovereignty over all creation. That theme will come up again in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam receives delegated authority from God, and he names the animals, and then he names his wife. God is exercising his sovereignty over creation. He's creating light, and he's creating darkness, or he's separating the two. The second day, verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now notice on each day when God begins his creative activity, it just says God speaks. God said, God didn't break a sweat. God's not, God's not laboring in difficulty. He's just enjoying his creative strength. God speaks. And notice that there's poetic structure throughout this. There's a declaration, God said. God said, and then a commandment, let there be. And then a description of that creative activity and a confirmation, it was so. Particularly in the days three and four, this this climax of creation where we reach the center point, it was so, it was so, it happened. God spoke and it happened. And then God makes an evaluation, it was good. What he makes is good, it's good. And then a time marker, there was evening, there was morning. A first day, a second day, a third day. So we have this poetic structure. But I want you to notice as well the things that are sometimes absent from particular days. 
Let's read again. Verses 6 through 8. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were, were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. What do you notice is absent from that day? God doesn't make a declaration. It was good. Why not? Because the earth is not yet inhabitable by men and women. What is the point of creation? It's all moving toward us. God is making a place so that he can dwell with us. And so he doesn't make the declaration yet. It is good. Day three, land and vegetation. Verse nine, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind and God said that it was good, saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning a third day. Notice two things with me. First, there are two declarations that it is good on the third day. God separates the water. He pushes it back so the land can rise up. Now there is a place for man because man cannot live in water. So now there is a place and then he says, it is good because it is moving toward a place that can be inhabited by man. And then he fills it with vegetation and notice he only mentions two kinds of vegetation. What does he mention? Only things that man can eat. He doesn't talk about all kinds of trees and plants, but the kinds that are good for mankind. Because God's declaration that it is good is in relationship to its benefit to men and women. Okay? Because God is focused upon our blessing. It was good. So we come to the end of the first triad. Okay? Days one, two, and three. God has created form. He has created, in a sense, order out of chaos. And now he will begin the second half, the second triad, and he'll begin to fill each of these realms. So read with me. Fourth day, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Right? So we are back at the heavens. We're back in the sky. To separate day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good and there was evening, there was morning, a fourth day. Now, what do you know about uh, Egyptian gods? You know, what, what was the greatest god in, Egyptian, in the Egyptian pantheon? You've probably seen him in the movies or heard his name. Ra, right? Sun god. In God's description here in Genesis chapter 1 of creation, he doesn't even mention the sun. He just says there's a greater light and there's a lesser light. They don't have names because they're not personal. Now, the Hebrews had names for these things. But he doesn't use them at this point. He says they're just a greater light and a lesser light. He just dismisses them offhand. And what he talks about now is he's turned the corner. He begins to talk about function. These lights are for a function. They govern. And what they do is they create a rhythm 
for work and for worship, for labor and for rest. They create a a, a rhythm for the cycles of man's life, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, work and worship. When we discuss Sabbath rest in a, few week, in a couple weeks, we'll talk about that rhythm of life that God creates and structures for mankind. Now, day five, verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, there was morning, a fifth day. On the fifth day, we have the second use of the verb barah. God is not creating out of nothing, but he is taking existing matter and he's doing something new and fresh. What he's doing is he's creating the first living beings in whom is the breath of life. There was plant life before, but now we have animal life created. And so God says, let me barah, let me create, let me do something new and fresh, something that no one else can do. And he creates all of the animals in the, fi- the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. And then day six, he creates the animals on land and he creates mankind. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind and God saw that it was good. But God is not done. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over everything. Fish of the sea, birds of the sky, cattle on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is our third barah, and it's repeated three times. God created man because he's doing something again, new and fresh. He's taking dust to the earth, that is, matter that already exists, but he's doing something that has never been seen before. He's making a creature in his image, male and female, he created them. And so three times he, cre- he, he repeats the verb barah, barah, barah. God is doing something new and fresh and remarkable. And animal life, that is good. But when he finishes his creation of men and women, what does he say? He says, it was very, very good. It's not just good, it's very good. This is the pinnacle of creation. This is why God created heavens and earth. So that man could dwell with God. So what we have here in days one through six is form is created. There is order given to the chaos And then there are creatures that are made. Well, first, actually sun and moon to govern and rule. And then birds to populate the sky, fish to populate the water, animals to populate the land, and then man to rule over all. A ruler is set over all. All is set in order, and so God can rest. And so God rests on the seventh day. He he ceases. Sabbath means to cease. He ceases his creative activity. That is, his activity of creating heavens and earth. What we see in the Bible is that God continues to work, but God isn't working to create any longer. Instead, he's on Sabbath rest in terms of creation. However, one day will come when he makes a new heavens and new earth, and he will take up creative activity again. But at this point in time, God rests. He's done. And what we'll see as we discuss 
the whole concept of Sabbath is he invites us to enter into that enjoyment of the fruit of our labors. God rests. Okay, that's a quick overview of what happens in Genesis chapter 1, textually. Now, what I want to address with our remaining time is questions probably on a lot of your minds, and that is this. How do you reconcile Genesis 1 and modern science? I want to say from the outset, I still don't think this is the primary reason that Genesis chapter 1 was written. It wasn't written to answer our specific question, but you can't have missed the fact that Christians have debated and divided over this issue for centuries. Even long before Darwinism came up, there was discussion and debate and disagreement and division over how old, in fact, is the earth and how do you reconcile it with modern findings of science. What do you do with that? Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a, a survey of options. Uh, if, for the scientists among us, you're going to say, Brian, you should have spent a lot more time on each position and given pros and cons on each. You're going to be very disappointed because I will not have said enough. For the theologians among you, you're going to say, you said way too much. Just stick with the text, right? So this is one of those sermons where I, I promise to disappoint everyone <laughs> by the end. Okay, but I'm going to do my best. Okay, now before I get into surveying the options, I want to uh, discuss a particular term that is uh, highly controversial, freighted, and that is the term evolution. Different people mean different things when they say the word evolution. What typically comes to our mind is naturalistic evolution, okay, atheistic evolution. The idea that matter is eternal, matter is the ultimate, it's all that there is, And that we can explain life from the spontaneous appearance of that first cell through natural processes, random chance, what's described as natural selection. So from a single cell all the way up to human complexity, there is no God guiding that process even. There is no God whatsoever. God does not exist. This is an atheistic viewpoint. So obviously for Christians, that's that's not an option. Because it rejects God. Now let me say, uh, regarding this, kind of taking us back to last week, that um, according to uh, current theory, the earth is 4.5 billion years old. 4.5 billion years is really a death knell to atheistic evolution. It sounds like a long time to us, but it's not nearly enough time to explain the existence and complexity of life on the earth. You've heard the analogy before, uh, if you put monkeys in a room and let them just begin to type, if you gave them a billion years, they couldn't come up with a novel, right? (laughs) If you put a billion monkeys in a room for a billion years, they couldn't come up with a novel. Why? Because random processes don't produce order and complexity. A a ball doesn't bounce up the stairs unless someone throws it up the stairs. So even if we were to concede that the earth is actually old, that's not nearly enough time for life and its complexity to be produced on the earth. So we reject this, right? We, we say, as we, we discussed last week, it's not really reasonable to accept the idea that there is no God, that there is no uncaused cause outside of the created universe. Second position is what's known as theistic evolution. Okay, according to theistic evolution, uh, God created that original spark of life and then he guided evolutionary processes. That's how God created. Okay, with one exception, there was a special creation for theistic evolutionists. There was a special creation, a special act of God when he made man. So man is not simply a more highly evolved primate, but God specially created 
mankind. And some of you are saying to yourselves, well, a Christian can't believe that. Right? Some of you are saying that to yourselves. I, I, I know that you are. But guess what? You're probably sitting with a few theistic evolutionists here in the crowd this morning. Uh, they're, they're usually afraid in church to raise their head because somebody will chop it off, right? Okay, but I have known many theistic evolutionists who are evangelical believers. They believe in the inerrancy of the word of God. They believe in a real creation of Adam, a real historical person. They believe in the fall, that we are related to Adam and Eve through the fall. That's where sin comes from. They believe in the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. He's God in human flesh. They believe in substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for our sins, and by grace we are saved through faith. So everything that we would say, that's evangelical. They believe, though, that God used evolution as the process and guided it to create life. Now, most of them would concede that's not directly taught by Genesis, but they would say Genesis leaves room for that. So I just say that to make you aware there are divergent opinions sitting in this room. Okay? A third category uh, I would describe as confined evolution. Now, this is not a technical term. This is just a descriptive term that, that Blake and I came up with this week as we were discussing this topic. Confined evolution is using, in a sense, the vocabulary of Genesis 1, that God created things after their kind. In other words, there are, there are boundaries for change. Evolution just means change. How broad or how narrow are those boundaries in which things change? Well, it's within what Genesis describes as kinds. Things can, can, create, can, can propagate after their kind, and there may be some latitude in that. You remember the uh, taxonomy that, or, that we all had to uh, memorize when we were in uh, eighth grade biology, right? Species, genus, family, order, class. Well, obviously, these things didn't exist, and kinds is not a modern biological term. So where do you draw the line? I, I don't know. I don't know, but let me give you an example. There are... Uh, 4,740 known species of frogs on the earth. Did God specifically and individually create all 4,740 species? Or did he create one or two or a hundred and allow them to adapt or allow microevolution, adaptation to environments to get us to 4,740? I don't know. I don't know. My point is simply this. We all concede some level of change within species, right? We need to be careful as we're defining our terms. So let me walk us through seven views. I'm going to give you seven views. There are more views than I could actually count on this topic. So I'm going to give you seven, and I'm going to categorize them in three areas, three broad categories. First, the earth is young. Second, the earth is old. Third, the age of the earth is indeterminate. So we'll start with young earth creationism. This is the one that probably most of us are most familiar with. Okay, young earth creationism. According to this position, uh, the earth was created about six to 10,000 years ago. They get that number, proponents of this position get that number from adding the genealogies in Genesis, okay, calculating genealogies. So the earth is six to 10,000 years old. God created everything directly. So they would have very narrow bounds on adaptation all things, heaven and earth, created directly by God, a literal six days. Okay, so the six days of Genesis 1 are literal 24-hour periods. God created everything in 144 hours. Okay, that's the basic position. Now, there are several advantages to this. The, the most obvious is that it's a very transparent way of reading Genesis chapter 1. 
It's the most simple and straightforward way of reading Genesis chapter 1. It does uh, due service to the term day. The term day in Hebrew is yom. And when you combine the term yom with uh, ordinal numbers, so a first day, a second day, a third day, and then these markers, evening and morning, it always in Hebrew literature means 24 hours. Okay? So it's, it's really doing uh, justice to that concept and that term in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, this was the most common interpretation of the early church. Not the, not the exclusive one, but the most common interpretation of the early, early church. Now, a couple challenges to this position. Um, probably the, the, the most challenging is for the scientists among us, some of the scientists among us anyway, would say, you know, this doesn't really square, a six to 10,000 year old earth doesn't really square with what we see in geology and in planetary physics. In geology, we have structures that appear old. Young earth creationists would say, yes, they appear old, but that's because of catastrophes, specifically the catastrophe of a global flood. A global flood over the entire earth created pressure and then rapid erosion and created these structures that appear old. Another challenge to this position is uh, what we see in the heavens. We see stars that are billions of light years away. We know the speed of light, and so we can calculate light years. We see stars that are billions of light years away. How can we see them if they were only made six to 10,000 years ago? A couple responses that young earth creationists will give. One is that uh, God could create things with the appearance of age. Adam was created not as a baby and then raised by wolves, right? I mean, Adam was created as a full-grown man. Okay? Same could have been true. He could have created the stars and the, the waves of light in between. So there's an appearance of age. It could be that these laws that govern the universe were not exactly the same at that moment of creation when God made the stars. It may have been that the speed of light was different. Okay? Those are possible answers. Now, let me tell you, there are some excellent scientists that hold to this position. You want to research it more, um, two, two places I'd encourage you to go. Uh, Answers in Genesis, and then the Institute for Creation Research. Okay? Okay, but what I want you to notice is each of these positions has some strengths and some weaknesses. Now, the earth is old. First position that represents this category is the day-age theory. Okay, read with me Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. So in verse four, the word day is used not of a literal 24 hours, but of a broader period of time in the day that God made. Well, we just said he made it in six days. So it's using day in a more generic sense. So according to this position, the days of chapter one are actually ages, long periods of time during which God progressively was creating, okay, in age after age after age, or maybe he had bursts of creative activity, or perhaps he used evolution and guided creation through these long ages that the days represent, okay? A couple advantages to this position. Uh, First, it maintains this six-day textual structure, right? Another advantage simply is that it's easier to fit this into certain scientific categories. On the other hand, a disadvantage is the days don't really line up with evolutionary theory about the sequence of events. So it's, it's a force fit, even scientifically. The, the bigger problem with this is the word day doesn't mean age in Genesis chapter 1. That's really a stretch. If it did, this would be a unique instance of the use of the word yom 
in chapter 1. Okay? Third, days of proclamation. In days of proclamation. According to this view, uh, what we have is six literal, sequential, 24-hour days. But God's not creating on those days. Instead, God is proclaiming what he's about to do. In other words, God is just making a proclamation. This is what's going to happen. It's like uh, before the game, Coach Sumlin gets out the chalkboard and he writes a bunch of X's and O's and he talks about individual plays and he talks about a game plan. He's mapping it all out. And then the team goes out and executes it, right? Or an architect who sketches a drawing and then later the structure is built. These are simply six literal days in which God proclaimed what he was going to do. And he could have done it, according to this view, billions of years ago. Right? This view is uh, very consistent a lot of times with um, uh, theistic evolutionists hold this position frequently. Days of proclamation. Okay? The advantage is, again, you stick to a six-day literal structure in Genesis chapter 1. The problem is Genesis chapter 1 gives us no hint that God's just proclaiming. In fact, it's, it's, it's language of execution, right? God speaks and it happens. And then he says, it was good. And then he concludes the day. So it's, it's boom, boom, boom. You don't have this idea of a proclamation and then billions of years later he begins the process of executing. So it's not really consistent with the text in that regard. Third category, the age of the earth is indeterminate. First theory that goes with this is what's called the gap theory. Okay, according to the gap theory, there's a huge gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1, God creates the heavens and the earth and then during this gap, Satan fell. Satan sinned, he was cast down to the earth, and as he was cast down to the earth, he brought his sin and chaos to God's creation. And so you had a creation of the earth billions of years ago, and then Satan's fall corrupted the earth. And so what happens in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and following, is that God is restoring or recreating the earth. The advantage to this is, again, you're left with six literal days, but they're literal days of recreation or restoration of the earth. The challenge for this position is it's hard to see the gap, okay? Uh, the, the, the grammar doesn't really lend us to say there's a gap there. Is it possible? Yes. You know, we have a gap between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, And it's not really apparent in the text until we receive later revelation. So it's possible there's a gap there. Uh, This week, as Blake and I were talking about it, he said, you know, this is kind of like the um, have your cake and eat it too theory, right? Because you can have six literal days and then you can shove all of the hard science into the gap. Okay? So that's the gap theory. Fifth, days of revelation. Days of revelation. Uh, This position begins with a simple observation. Moses wasn't there. And when creation happened, Moses wasn't there, right? Moses is bound by time. So Moses didn't time travel. He didn't go back in time. He went up on the mountain, and he was on the mountain for 40 days. And part of those 40 days, God was revealing to him the creation story. So according to this view, over six days, God revealed the creation story. He said, day one, Adam, sit back, get your popcorn, angels, roll the tape, Right? Now we're going to start day one. And for a day, he watched what happened. Okay? God is revealing it to him. And then he went to sleep. Day one, recorded everything. And then he woke up and God said, okay, roll day two. Roll day two. Okay? And it went on like this. God is revealing over the course of six 
literal days. Now, it's not, it's not an impossible idea. Think about John's revelation, very last book of the Bible. Okay? It says, John was in the spirit and God revealed to him and he revealed to him a course of events that actually spanned 1,007 years at least, if not longer. But he received that revelation in the course of just a few days, maybe a few weeks. The challenge is that we have very clear markers in Revelation. It says, John is about to receive a vision. Listen to the vision. In Genesis, it's written as historical narrative. Okay? So it's not, that's not immediately transparent. Uh, what's nice about it is it does preserve six literal days. Okay? Sixth position, preparation of the land. And this position also begins with a simple observation. The word Eretz in Hebrew can mean earth, okay, the whole thing, or it can mean land. Okay. Eretz can mean earth or it can mean land. Specifically, in the Pentateuch, Eretz almost always refers to a specific portion of land, the promised land. Okay. So it's very easy to say, if a Jew heard the word Eretz, they would have been thinking land, specifically what land? Ha Eretz, the land, the promised land. In fact, if you ask a Jew today, what is Ha Eretz? The Jew will say, not the globe, our land. One of the most popular papers in Israel is titled Ha'aretz. It's not about the earth. That paper doesn't, is not talking about the earth. It's talking about our land, promised land. And what you see in Genesis chapter 2 is the boundaries are given for Eden, which means delight. A garden is placed within it, but those boundaries are exactly the same boundaries as the boundaries given to Abraham as his promised land. And so throughout the Pentateuch, you see this as a very common understanding of the Jew that Ha'aretz or Eretz means not the earth, but the land. So in Genesis 1.1, God creates heavens and earth, which means the universe. And then in Genesis 1.2 and following, he is doing in six literal days, preparing the promised land to, for it to be inhabited by people. Okay, so he is moving the waters aside from this more limited geographical area, raising land up. Now, from the perspective of the viewer, atmosphere is cleared and I can see the sun, which already existed, but I couldn't see it because the land was covered and it was chaotic. So God is planting a, a place, a garden, within this boundary for man to dwell with God. Okay? Um, the challenge to this position is, it's certainly a lot harder for us to see because we are not Jews living 3,500 years ago. Is that really what they heard? Did they hear just the land or did they hear something broader? Uh, and then there's some other passages later on in the Pentateuch that seem to say that God created all of creation in the six days, but those are different grammar. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit tricky. Now, seventh position, literary framework. According to this position, what you have in Genesis chapter one is simply a poem. Okay, so like roses are red, violets are blue. I start off like that and you say, that's poetry, Brian. It's, it's bad poetry, it's cheap poetry, but it's poetry and it's about love. Got it. Okay, that, there's a genre that immediately comes to your mind. There were ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, and certainly Genesis 1 is very similar to those in many respects. It's most similar, actually, to the cosmology of the Egyptians. And so according to this position, all that Moses is doing is he's taking Egyptian gods and other false gods out, and he's inserting Yahweh. Just to demonstrate that Yahweh is the one true creator God. And so there's really no reference or importance to the sequence or the timing whatsoever. It's just a, poet, a poem that demonstrates God is the one true God. Okay? So those are seven positions. 
And I, I, I know I can't get out of here today um, without answering the question. So, Brian, what do you think? Right? Um, you, you would corner me and uh, beat me until I answered. So um, I'm going to tell you, I have, I have a few convictions about this. I have three specifically, okay? My first conviction is this. I don't know how old the earth is. I don't know. I have no doubt, though, that one day we'll stand before our creator God and he'll begin to lay it all out for us and we'll go, oh, yeah, of course. Ah, should have seen that, right? I should have understood that. I should have noticed that in the text. I should have seen that in the universe. Okay? Some of us should have looked more closely at the text and been absorbed in it. Some of us should have been more skeptical of science and recognized theories do come and go. Science is not infallible, but nor is our interpretive method infallible. The word of God is infallible, and we're all in agreement upon that. What we disagree about is how should we properly interpret the inerrant, infallible word of God. Okay, so my first conviction is, I don't know. I can argue for that all day on many topics. Uh, my second conviction is this. Uh, I still don't think the primary intent of Genesis 1 is to tell us the age of the earth. doesn't mean that Genesis 1 says nothing about it, but I just don't think that's the primary intent. Uh, Bruce Walkie is an Old Testament scholar. He wrote this. The biblical account is answering the primary questions of who the agent is and why he created. By contrast, science is asking the secondary questions of how and when the cosmos originated. Science cannot answer the former set of questions, and Genesis does not aim to answer the latter. I agree with that. Now, my third conviction is this. There is a beautiful literary framework in Genesis 1. And I agree with the the concept of literary framework. It is tohu and bohu. It's formless and void. And God sets about to create structure and order and to fill it with his rulers. Why? So that he can create a place that we can be with God in fellowship. So I see that literary structure but I would disagree. I, I think there's much more there than just poetry. So if press, I would lean, I lean toward uh, the idea of the preparation of the land. Am I absolutely 100% convinced? No. But that, may, that resonates with me a lot. It makes sense that a Hebrew would hear it this way, that in the beginning God created heavens and the earth, that is the universe, and then sometime later he began to work on this mass that was formless and void, and he prepared it for human habitation during six literal days, leaving the age of the earth indeterminate. Okay, that's what I lean toward. Again, not with absolute and 100% conviction. But I do say this. Look, the age of the earth is not the gospel. Okay, the age of the earth is not the gospel. We need to get that into our heads. I remember my dad telling me a couple years back, he went back to uh, upstate New York where I'd grown up, back to our church, and he was sitting there uh, worshiping in the church. The, the service ended, and uh, there were two men sitting in front of him that he had known for a long time. And he overheard that they were having an argument, and they were arguing about the age of the earth. And he said, Brian, you know what's amazing to me is that when we left 30 years ago, they were having the same argument. (laughs) None of these positions attack the gospel. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, walked the earth, hung on a cross to die for your sins. So that you could be restored to relationship with God. So that someday when paradise is restored, you could walk in fellowship with God 
forever. That's the point of Genesis 1. That's the point of the gospel. J.I. Packer wrote, The message of these two chapters is this. Have you seen the sea, the sky, sun, moon, and stars? Have you watched the birds and the fish? Have you marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings? It's fantastic, isn't it? Well now, meet the one who is behind it all and worship him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have not left this place nor us in darkness, but you have shown the light of the glory of the knowledge of you in the face of Jesus Christ, and we can know him. And in knowing him, we can know you, and we can have the guarantee, the promise, that we will be with you forever as you designed us to be. Father, I pray that you would stir up within us both worship and a deep desire to bear witness to our friends and family who do not know you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week enjoying God's creation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Morton here with Brian Fisher and Blake Jennings. And we're here to talk about the sermon from September 8th, 2013, In the Beginning Creation. Some great issues that you guys brought up on Sunday related to Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world, and some tough issues also. A lot of people struggle with Genesis 1. It becomes a real stumbling point for their faith and their walk with the Lord. And so, Uh, We wanted to start by following up. Brian, I just want to ask you, uh, give us a rundown briefly of what are some of the key challenges that people struggle with in Genesis 1. I know some people struggle with Genesis 1 and science and how those fit together. What would you say are the big issues to approach Genesis 1 about? Well, actually, some of the greatest challenges exist within the text itself and how we interpret the text itself. For example, there are differences between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, it appears that the animals are created first and then Adam or mankind. In chapter 2, it appears that the animals are created after mankind. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the existence of light on day 1 before the creation or at least the appearance of the sun on day 4. Uh, And then what is the significance of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1? Is that just an introduction? Is it a summary of what is to follow? Is it a unique event, the creation of the universe? Uh, Is there a sequence of event or a causal relationship between verses 1 and 2? So within the text itself, there's some great challenges to interpret what's going on there. And then obviously how you reconcile Genesis 1 creation story with uh, modern conclusions in the field of geology. So apparent age of certain geological features when, uh, according to young earth creationists, the earth is just six to 10,000 years old, or in the realm of physics, the apparent age of distant stars. The fact that we can see stars that are billions of light years away seems to imply that they are billions of years old. So reconciling those things is definitely challenging. Okay, so a lot of really tough issues, and I know we've all talked to some people for whom this is extremely important. When they would rate different doctrinal beliefs, they'd say, this may be right up there with the resurrection of Jesus. 
then you talk with other people that say, you know, I don't know what's going on in Genesis and I don't really care. It just isn't high on their radar. If you were to say, you know, in the grand scheme of Christian theology, kind of on the spectrum, uh, how important is this issue? Does it matter? In the grand scheme of Christian theology, I would say that the timing and the mechanics of when and how God created are not so important. On the other hand, affirming that Genesis 1 is true and that it is reliable in what it teaches is absolutely critical. So, for example, Genesis 1 teaches us that God created out of nothing. Uh, That is affirmed elsewhere in the Bible as well, in no uncertain terms, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Uh, As we've discussed previously also, it's more reasonable logically to believe that God exists rather than that God does not exist. To affirm the idea that uh, matter and energy are eternal and just simply exist out of nothing or that life came from random processes is not the most reasonable explanation for what we see. Um, so that's true logically, but as I said, also biblically, we, we have to affirm that Genesis 1 is true, it is reliable, it is not simply another ancient Near Eastern myth. In other words, we can't surrender the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. However, however I do feel like we have to be very humble in recognizing our own fallibility in interpreting that inerrant word. Okay, great. Yeah, that issue of the authority of the scripture seems to really be key. There may be a variety of ways to interpret it. Blake, what would you say, someone who asked this question about the relative priority of Genesis 1 and how to reconcile those questions? Right. I I think it's helpful to try to delineate between different things that Genesis 1 teaches. Some of them are very important. Some of them are less important. I agree wholeheartedly with the things that Brian has mentioned. I would add to that the special creation of humanity, which we'll look at at much more detail next week as we get into chapter 2. But the Bible will say often that Adam and Eve were real historical people, a man specially created by God and then a woman created from his body. They were married together and became the, the progenitors of the entire human race. And much of the theology that we'll get to in the New Testament is based on that reality. Paul will talk about a literal historical Adam and Eve in Romans 5, 1 Timothy 2. So that one is is highly important, holding to that. I know that that can be controversial for folks. Um, On the other hand, um, trying to figure out how exactly uh, evolution fits into the picture, that's a little bit less important as we think about plant life and animal life and fish and birds. So it's helpful to try to delineate between the different beliefs and, and make a case that not everything is as important as other things in the chapter. Blake, I completely agree. Regarding Adam and Eve, we cannot explain fallen human nature and consequently our need for salvation apart from a literal historical Adam and Eve who literally made a choice to rebel against God and plunged humanity into this fallen state. Yeah, so, and that's really key to recognize when we talk about the reliability of the scripture. It's okay that there may be metaphors and symbols in there, but the essence of the text when we talk about Adam needs to be historical or it undermines the whole thing. That's, that's a great point. Clearly, let me give one illustration regarding the creation account itself. Psalm chapter 139, we're told that we were knit together in our mother's womb. Clearly, that's a poetic description. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have what I would describe as a narrative description where God takes the dust of the earth and he makes Adam. That's not scientific. It's not clearly poetic. It is narrative. And we would have to affirm it's a a true account within that particular genre of literature. 
Yeah, and for some people, they really struggle with these issues. And I know we're here in an academic environment in particular where creation and evolution and how that relates to the Bible can even be a stumbling block for some people as they are thinking about Christianity. Um, and I feel like y'all's sermons did a good job discussing those issues and providing some solutions. But for those who may be listening that have a friend, I know I've got friends and even family members who would say, this is a barrier to me trusting Christ. Blake, how, how would you respond to that person that says, I'm having a hard time believing in the Bible at all because of these issues? Right. That's an excellent question. When we think about these issues practically, I, I find that for most people, it can be helpful to tell them early on, you know, there are ways to reconcile much of what we see in Genesis 1 with much of what we see in modern science. But then you, as quickly as you, you can, you want to refocus them on the issues that really count. And the first of those issues Brian has already mentioned, and that's the existence of the God of the Bible. Uh, you might go back to what we covered a couple weeks ago. God either exists or he doesn't, and there's a great deal of evidence in favor of his existence. And if he exists, well, then that, that changes everything, because now you have a creator God who, who exists that you are accountable to. The second issue to focus their attention on is the life of Jesus. And I think that it can be easy for us in Genesis 1 to lose uh, focus on the reality that, that the coming of the Son of God, his death for our sins, his resurrection— that's really everything to our faith. That's the key. If Jesus rose from the dead, then that is everything. Then you have to deal with that fact, and that changes everything. Everything else is, comparatively speaking, pretty unimportant compared to the reality of the resurrection. And fortunately, there's a great deal of evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I find that it's most helpful, if people are willing to, to go with me, if they're willing to look at the evidence, to focus on evidence for the existence of the God of the Bible and evidence for Jesus being a real person who died and rose from the dead. If you can win the day on those issues, that's the biggest, uh, those are the biggest issues. That's the most important thing. And then you can bring them back once they've dealt with that evidence and look at some of these different views within Genesis 1. But, but keep the focus on the existence of God and the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, it seems like once a person acknowledges that there is a God who created the world and that he's capable of raising his son from the dead, some of these other uh, important but secondary issues tend to be resolved in their minds. So if you can believe in that kind of a God, then whether or not he could create in six days and how he could do it, those things don't seem to burn on your mind as, as hard. Right. I, I, in these kind of things, I always think of Peter's words to Jesus in the book of John. Uh, Jesus taught some very difficult things. Genesis 1 is a very difficult thing. Uh, and Peter at some point was asked by Jesus, so are you going to leave me? And Peter said, well, where else will we go for words of life? And um, that's what I think of with the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is real, if he is um, God's son, then that changes everything. And if, if there's parts of the Bible that I can't explain, if there's things about who God is and what he's done that I can't explain, that's okay. Because I know that he exists, that Jesus rose for me, and that there's no other place to go for hope, for peace, for joy. So, yeah, I think focusing them on, on the essentials, the gospel, that's the most important thing. Well, uh, as we kind of wrap up, great discussion. Uh, Brian, start us off. Tell us a few resources. If someone wants to look a little further, where would they go to read about this topic? Sure. Let me give you a, f a few resources on the age of the earth, creation, evolution type issues. 
First, there's uh, three views on creation and evolution. That's a point-counterpoint style of book that can give you an overview of those topics. Then there's the Genesis debate, and then uh, one that a book called Genesis Unbound by John Salehammer that is a resource particularly on a, a, a position that is known as uh, the promised land or uh, God's preparation of the land. So it takes a, a little more narrow view of Genesis chapter 1. But then I'd also want to point our listeners to uh, resources on the resurrection in particular because, uh, as you both have noted, that is the central issue. And for me, in a very personal, profound way, that was the issue that solidified my faith when I could establish the historicity of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That uh, took me so far in uh, confidence in my faith. And so I would direct our, our listeners to writings by William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas on uh, the resurrection. Great. And for any other resources or to listen to these podcasts and the sermons, you can always go to our website, grace-bible.org. Download our new app, Grace Bible Texas, and you can get all of these resources directed to your phone, at least in terms of what we provide here from Grace. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Mm -hmm.